So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to the book of Galatians. We're going to look at chapter 5, verses 16 through 24 this morning. And so today we are in part 3 of our series called Poisoned, which is a series on sin and understanding that all of us, no matter how good we might think we are, we've all been touched by this thing called sin in our life. We've been impacted by it. And so the last couple weeks, the first two weeks of this series, we, we kind of dug into in, in Genesis chapter 3 and then Romans 1, kind of the origins of our sin, kind of what's going on there. Where did this all start? And it started back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And the first kind of origin of sin was this attempt by humanity to become God. In a sense, to instead of God being God, we become our own God. And when we come to this understanding that we are human and we're not good enough to be God, then something else happens. Instead of saying, oh, God is God, I don't have to be God anymore, we move from Genesis 3 to Romans 1 and we say, instead of trying to be God, I'll just replace him. I'll put something in his place and we call an idol, something that represents something greater than me, but it's not God. So we either try to become him or we try to replace him is kind of where our sin comes from. But really the bottom line is that all of us have a, a question that we have to come to grips with in our life in terms of sin. And that is this basic question, why do we sin? And we can give a million examples, and we can have great theology, and we can go through a list of biblical reasons why we sin. We're human, we have a sin nature, we live in a broken world, we're bad people, all those things. And they're true. But what is the, the primary motivation of our sin? What is underneath the surface that causes us to sin? What are we doing in the process of our sin? What is the goal of our sin? So answer this question, how many honestly have ever done something in your life and then looking back on that event or that moment, you think to yourself, what in the world was I thinking? Anybody? All of us. We all live with this sense of regret of things that we did and we look back and we look at it and think, how could have I thought that was a good idea? Because at the moment you thought this is a great idea and then you realize it wasn't. What was going on inside of you that made you make that decision? I've got a long list in my life of those kinds of things. Those kind of regrets or those moments where you look back and think, why did I do that? One moment early on for me that I really remember is one of those kind of moments where I, I kind of dug a little bit deeper and thought, why did I do that? And I think I've shared this before, but uh, when in my, I don't know what, I can't remember what year it was in high school, but basketball, we were coming to the end of the season. We were playing for the league championship. I was kind of the main offensive option on our team, and so the ball was coming to me a lot that night, and I had a horrible game. I could not shoot the ball. I wasn't scoring, and the coach had more faith in me than I had faith in myself, and he kept running plays to me, and I kept missing. And so after the game, we lost, and I remember I got home, and I was just, like, overwhelmed with just depression. Like, I let my team down. The gym was packed. People were screaming, and we lose. So I let the school down. I let my coach down. Like, you just feel horrible. I remember I walk into my bedroom. I close the door, and I just hit the ground. I start sobbing because I just felt this weight that I couldn't live up to. And so I knew the next morning I had a really early shift. I was working at McDonald's, and so I knew I had to get up, and I was tired, and I thought, I just can't go to work tomorrow. And so I started thinking, there's got to be another option. I knew my coach had mentioned we have open gym tomorrow, so all day long the gyms will be open. If you want to come play and shoot and practice, you're welcome to come. And I think, I need to go in a gym. I don't need to go to work. So I, so I got up the next morning. I got in my dad's car that I was driving at the time, and instead of going to work, I drove to the school, didn't bother to call my employer, didn't bother to tell my parents what I was doing, just thought, this is the best thing I can come up with that's going to help me not to feel so depressed. So I was in the gym all day long, and I played and had a great time, and then I drove home, and I drove into the driveway. I get into the living room. My dad's sitting there, and he says, where have you been all day? I'm like, I was at the gym. I was playing basketball. And then I could tell by the look on his face this conversation was not going to go well at all. 
He said, well, for starters, he goes, your employer was calling all day long wondering where you were. I said, oops, that's not a good thing. He said, yeah, and then, by the way, I called around, and I called your coach, and he was wondering why you were at the gym when you were supposed to be at work. I said, oop, that's not good either. He said, well, I'll tell you what we're going to do right now. We're going to get into the car. We're going to drive to McDonald's because your manager wants to fire you in person. I'm like, oh, you have to work really hard to get fired from McDonald's, okay? You just have to. <laughs> no offense if you've been fired from McDonald's, and then we're, we got something in common. But that wasn't the worst of it for me. To sit there, I, I, I really didn't want to work at McDonald's. Part of it was a relief. Part of it was humiliating. But the other thing that was worse is then I had to sit down with my coach. And my coach said, listen, your dad told me what you did. I, you, you were here all day long, and you gave me the, imperson or the impression that you were here because you were supposed to be here and not supposed to be working. He goes, for that reason. He goes, we're going into playoffs this week. You will not dress for that game, and you will not practice. And while we practice all week long, you will push a broom around the gym. That was the worst thing in my life. And then I remember sitting there after this thinking, what in the world was I thinking? How could I have thought this was the best option to deal with my depression? What was going on inside of me? Because all of us could rehearse something like that in our lives. I'll tell you what the core issue with me in that decision was I was trying to find something to satisfy the need to get out of a depressed mindset. I was looking for something to satisfy me, and I took the wrong option. And if you and I will think about all the moments in our life where we know we've sinned, we know we've fallen short, we know we've kind of gone off track from what God wants for us, we can go back to a moment, and the question that was, whether you think it or not, that was kind of ringing around in your heart and your mind was, how do I satisfy this need in my life? And then you took steps to figure out how you could do it on your own. That's what is going on in all of us when we sin, is we're seeking out some kind of satisfaction from our life. And instead of doing it what we think God wants, we'll kind of find another way. Webster's Dictionary talks about that's, that's what satisfaction is. It's meeting an unmet need. It's finding a way to meet something, and it's a source of something that helps us to satisfy something in our soul. And when we, when we look at our lives, we have a decision all the time of how am I going to meet that need? Because what we come to is, in our minds, we think, I think I can do it better and faster than God can. I can satisfy that need in my life better than God can. You and I don't say that, because that's kind of arrogant, but that's how we act out. We say, you know, I think I can do this better than God, so I'm not going to do what God wants me to do. I'm going to do what I want to do, because I think I can do this better. That's the motivation of our sin. And in, Gal in Galatians chapter 5, this is a great, great section of verses. It's pretty famous. We always go to this when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, and we'll talk about that a little this morning. But in this passage, in verse 16 to verse 24, Paul gives us this great comparison of two realities. One is our flesh and the road it leads us down, our own sinful nature. And then the other is being led by the Spirit in our life that leads us to God producing His fruit in our life. Two completely opposite realities, but two things that all of us have to come to grips with because they are both, at the core, answering to the need for us to have a sense of satisfaction in our lives. So if you have your Bibles, let me read verse 16 to verse 24, and then we'll kind of walk through it together. So verse 16, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, 
jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So Paul's like got this huge comparison here. And starting off with the first kind of section, looking at particularly verses 19 through 21, Paul gives this list of what the, the road looks like when we go down the, the road of our flesh. It says, I'm going to meet the needs of my life. I'm going to satisfy myself. There's avenues that we go down that we think are going to answer to that, and they lead to a dead end, and they lead to devastation in our life. So let me just, let's just walk through those. So the first kind of category, he gives general words, but there's categories they kind of fall into. The first thing that you and I attempt, these are attempts to satisfy our lives. The, the first avenue that mo- many of us take is through the avenue of sex. This is the, this is the way of our culture. That ultimately, sex is something that will answer to the satisfaction that I desire in life. And so Paul uses three words. Sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. All of those have to do with the sexual arena. Sexual immorality, any sexual activity outside the context of marriage. Impurity is actually a word that was originally used to describe anybody who had defiled themselves sexually so they couldn't be purified before their God, so they couldn't even relate to their God. And then he uses the word sensuality, which basically is saying, remove all limitations, all restrictions, and just go after pleasure. That's what sensuality is. And so he says, this is the category, the first category. So in our mind, we think, I have a need within me, and the way that's going to be answered is through the avenue of sex. That's the culture we live in. We have put sex on a pedestal as the ultimate idol. It's the ultimate goal for so many people. And we have this mindset that somehow that, that the more that we can experience that, the better it's going to be, and the more I'm going to be satisfied in, in the reality of our cultures, it's the opposite. There's this, there's this myth, and I deal with it in counseling with people all the time, particularly pre-married counseling, and some, sometimes it's people with second marriage. And it doesn't always happen this way, but a lot of times the guy will come and say, I got an issue with lust, I got a, a, an issue with sexual temptation in my life and, and addiction. And he'll say this or he'll think this, and he'll say to me, but when I get married... I'll be okay. As though the answer to your issue is more sex or sex at all will make you satisfied. Because they think, well, then my wife will fulfill all my needs. Oh, I will pray for you and for your wife. Because you're looking at her as somebody who's going to satisfy you in a way that only God can satisfy you. It's this myth that we buy into. Because the issue with sexual addiction is not sex, it's satisfaction in the wrong place that's how it lays out in our lives and so when you and i look at it that way what it's like doing is like trying to drink salt water to quench your thirst it'll make your mouth wet but the more you drink it it'll end up killing you it's the same thing it's the cycle that we get into it's like yeah this is the avenue i want to go to it's going to answer everything it's so interesting now even in our culture the church has been saying this for years but now the culture people who don't even know jesus are saying that sexual addiction is a real thing now and that pornography is actually destructive to human beings. That, for the longest time, that's been the church, and like, oh, you're just a bunch of prudes. You don't really understand. You're not really living. We're living, and now people who don't even know Jesus are saying, this thing has destroyed my life because it's something that's not satisfying me. It's like drinking salt water, and it just actually, it actually begins to, to dry me up instead of quench my thirst. Then there's a second thing. We'll move on because it always gets quiet when you talk about things that are uncomfortable. <coughs> As though the second one's going to be even more comfortable. 
And that is, there's a couple more words that Paul uses as we go through this, and they come in the category of trying to use power as a means to satisfy our lives. Two things Paul says, idolatry and sorcery. So I, if you were here last week, we talked about the concept of an idol. Is it necessarily something that's a bad thing? Many times in our life, an idol is a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. It becomes God. And so it can be any good thing in our life that kind of gets exalted to that place. So Paul says idolatry. Why do we do that? Because we like the sense of control in terms of idolatry. And this is true when you go back to the Old Testament. Why would you create an idol? Because you can attribute to that idol anything you want it to have. And so you can control it and sense what you want that idol to have. And so there's this concept that goes out. Then the word sorcery has to do with, yes, with things that have to do with demonic presence and casting spells and things like that. But the word sorcery actually has its root in the concept of drugs, of substances that are used to alter the state of our minds. And so what, what Paul's saying is, listen, the avenue that you go down is to find something or substance that answers to you checking out of the reality of your life so that you feel some sense of satisfaction in your life when you're going through a difficult time. And so obviously in our culture, we see that that happens a lot with drugs. That happens a lot with things in our life. And, and so it doesn't have to be a bad thing. Again, it can be a good thing that we feel like once we get that thing, then we'll be happy. Then we'll be satisfied. Because we think we've put so much on that thing in our lives. And it gives us a sense of accomplishment where we've arrived and now I'm satisfied. I know I came to grips with the reality for me and it didn't hit me until after we actually owned a house. But I, for the longest times, I had put own home ownership as an idol in my life. Kim will tell you this. When we first got married, we were living in Ventura. And I'm telling you, nobody in except like the rich could afford Ventura. And still to this day. And so we rented for 12 years. We lived in like seven or eight different places. And I remember I was always kind of like anxious. Like we, we got to, like in my mind, I'm thinking I'm the man. I got to provide for my family. And what it will be like the day when I actually get the keys to my own house. Then I will have arrived. Anybody want to admit you've ever felt that? Okay, I'm like, like five of us. Okay, really? But for me, that was a huge deal. But I knew it was never going to happen in Ventura. So then we moved to Oregon. Oh, beautiful Oregon. Real estate's half the price of California. There's a reason for that. It's called the rain tax, okay? <laughs> so we moved to Oregon, and right off the bat, Kim had already known this had been a dialogue for us, but we started the dialogue right away. We moved into a rental, and already we started, within a couple weeks, we started talking about, we could buy here. We could buy, we, we could buy something because it's so cheap here. So we started going down that road, and 10 weeks, in 10 weeks from the moment we moved there, we bought a house and moved in. So I remember people at the church like, you're moving again? Guy, pastor, you just moved. Can you can I give it a rest? And so I remember it's like this glorious day of, tr of, of, of home ownership. I remember getting the keys and walking in. It's like, this is our house. Nobody can tell us what to do. Nobody can kick us out. It's ours. And then I discovered something about home ownership. When it started to rain, as it always does in Oregon, I discovered there was a leak in the roof. Not just one, but three. And when you're a homeowner, guess what? You own the leak. I didn't have a number I could call anymore. And then when the water heater went out, I own the water heater and the new one that I'm going to have to buy. And so on. And, and the deck that's falling apart in the backyard, I own the dry rot. It's all mine. Tree goes down in the backyard. I have to take the tree out because it's my tree. And I remember there were times that Kim and I sat down and think, it would so much, feel much easier if we were just renting. Seriously. Because when something would break, I'd say, hey, it's not mine, it's yours. You get to fix it. But I remember that, thinking that 
I had really put that as like, if I, want, if I could just own a house, then I will be happy the rest of my life. I wasn't. And now, it's, I mean, own a house now, but I don't put that premium. I don't put it up there anymore. If I have to rent a half, I don't, it doesn't matter. But what is it in your life that you've given that ultimate place to because you feel like it gives you a sense of accomplishment and power that will lead to feeling a sense of satisfaction in your life? Now, those of you who want to own a home, I'm not trying to burst your bubble, okay? It's not a bad thing. It's just a good thing that can become an ultimate thing. Then the third, third kind of category that Paul puts together here is, is the category of relationships as a means to try to find satisfaction in our lives. So Paul gives this crazy list, and this all has to do with the way we struggle to live in healthy relationships with each other when we end up using people as a means to our end. So he says these words, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. Whether we want to admit it or not, that describes a lot of our relationships. Because what we do is in our, in our effort to satisfy ourselves, we don't live selfless lives, we live selfish lives, and other people become a means to end. So relationships become the avenue of seeking satisfaction from somebody else. And when we realize they're human and disappoint us, what happens? Dissension, division, je jealousy, envy, all those things become a part of our relationships. Listen to what James says about the way we relate to people in James 4, verses 1 through 3. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is this, uh, uh, excuse me, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, it's all about you. And when it becomes all about us and we seek to use other people to satisfy us, then we end up in broken relationships. Happens over and over and over and again in our lives. And that's because we see people as a means to an end. And that means the moment that we get from them what we want, we're out. They serve their purpose. I'm done. I disconnect from you. Do you know who functions this way? God doesn't function this way, but you know who functions this way? The enemy does. This is the very way that the enemy functions with humanity and the way he relates to us. We are a means to his end. Because his enemy ultimately is not us. His enemy is God. And we're in the middle of the battle, and so he knows that he can use us to get at God. So listen to what Jesus said, and this is in John 10, verses 10 through 13. It says, the thief, Jesus says this, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired man and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus is using this example that the hired man, all the sheep represent is a paycheck. That's all. And the moment that goes away or the moment that's challenged, there's no commitment to the sheep. Why? Because they're a means to his end. Same the way the enemy relates to us. But Jesus actually lays his life down for his sheep. He actually gives everything. Why? Because we're not a means to his somehow his end. We will give glory through the salvation he brings to us. But ultimately, Jesus came and died on the cross to reconcile us back to God. That was the goal. And so in that being the reality, then we see that when we're, what's, what's it, at war in us is what's been modeled by the enemy and what's been modeled by Jesus. We choose one or the other. People are a means to end, or ultimately they are the end in our lives in terms of what God is doing in them. Then there's a fourth, a fourth area or where we attempt at satisfaction, and that is in the area of experiences. So Paul uses these terms. He says, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. 
what Paul's describing is basically a no-holds-barred party as much as you can, as often as you can, to get what you can in life. That's the mentality that sets in. So use substances, use people, but don't allow there to be any limitation or any restriction in that. And that's the way. And, you, and if you find the right experience, then you can go back to that experience again and again, and it will bring you a sense of satisfaction. That's what it promises. And we do that. And that's why, even in our culture, the challenge that we have is when we experience something one time, we think, this is the answer I've been looking for. But there's a problem. There's a reality that's true for all of humanity. It's, it's the law of diminishing return. That what you do the first time usually will be the best time, but then over time, when you try to go back to that high or that experience, it doesn't answer to what it did the first time. And so you have to do it again and again and again, or you have to do it more and more and more to try to reach the same level of experience and the same level of what you think is satisfaction. And it just creates this cycle over and over and over again. Anyone who's ever dealt directly with addiction in your life know this is true. That's why most people, when they start in the area of drugs, they don't start with the hardcore drug. They start with something that's accessible. And then eventually, over time, that doesn't do the job. So you've got to find something greater and more powerful. And you just keep going until finally there is nothing greater and more powerful. And you find that you're in this cycle. And that's what happens in our life. That's, that's the cycle of addiction. You don't even have to be an addict to be experience addiction because it's a part of our human sinful nature. That's, that's what happens in our lives. Why? Because we put some kind of premium on experiences. If I just go back and experience that with that person or I, I didn't go and, and try to find some experience that I had before and it's not there anymore and I get disappointed. I've got to change something. That's why it's so difficult because it leads to being dissatisfied. Because we've placed on an experience something that only God can answer to in our lives. We have to find it in him. So, and then Paul goes on, and I'm gonna, now we'll look at kind of the positive side of things. And that is, so he gives us the, the kind of brunt, brunt reality of, the blunt reality of this is what the flesh looks like. This is what happens when we make the decision, I'm going to go for satisfaction on my own. But then he says, listen, there's another way. There's a way that is the way that actually leads to true satisfaction in your life. And that is, there's three things. A life of satisfaction, first thing, look at verse 16, is a life that is spirit-led. So Paul says this. He says, I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is really important. So Paul uses the word walk. Anybody recall what word he used to describe the flesh? He said, these are the works of the flesh. And now he says, walk by the spirit. Really important. What is Paul saying? When you and I seek after satisfaction by ourselves, apart from God, apart from his Holy Spirit in us, it's work. We have to work for it. We have to work really hard in all those areas that Paul listed to try to find some ounce of satisfaction in our life. That's why he describes it as work. And then he says, but somebody who experiences satisfaction in God is simply doing what? Walking. Walking is the most basic mode of transportation to get from point A to point B. And what Paul's saying is when you walk in step with the Spirit, as you let Him lead you down the path of satisfaction, you will experience that. But if you go down the road of the flesh, you will work. Remember back in the garden? Remember what happened is God blessed Adam and Eve with paradise, and He gifted them this beautiful context to live in relationship with Him. And when they sinned, they lost that, and the very things that would have come to them as a gift, now they had to do what? They had to work for it. They had to work hard. Life became difficult and painful and a struggle. Why? Because the very things that God wanted to bless them with, now they had to work for. The same thing is true here. You and I want satisfaction on our own apart from God. It's just flat out work. But if we walk in step with the Spirit, then we actually experience that kind of satisfaction. 
And that means we have to be aware of where we are being led. What is the, what is the guidance system that we're using in terms of what decisions we're going to make with our life? Are we taking advice from culture or friends or things that we've read or things that aren't necessarily what God has for us? And so we're kind of letting those steer the direction of where we're going. And so we're going down the road of work, but we think we're going the right direction only to find that it's not the place that we thought it was. Or are we trusting God enough to say, okay, I'm going to trust that God's going to lead me by spirit to a place of satisfaction, even though this looks really appealing over here. Now, I said this first service, and I'm going to qualify it again second service. This is probably the only time you're going to hear me cap on Apple, okay? I love Apple, okay? I love Jesus more than Apple, okay? I have an iPhone, an iPad, iMac. I have the whole thing, okay? I have Apple TV. I have it all. But I will say this. Apple Maps stinks, Okay? Google Maps rocks, okay? So some of you are like, ooh, wow, Pastor John is like giving kudos to anything Android or Samsung or non-Apple. Whoa, look out. But if, if, if you've used Apple Maps, you know what I'm talking about. So a few years ago, the standard on, on most phones, and especially iPhones when they first came out, was Google Maps. Even Apple admitted Google knew better. But then Apple thought, we could do better than Google, so they made Apple Maps. I was so excited. Like, anything Apple's got to be better, right? So Apple Maps comes out, and then it's tied into Siri, so you can just speak into your phone, and it'll take you anywhere you want to go, except places that don't even exist on a map. It'll take you there. And there's time and time again, well, like, oh, to give Apple Maps a try. Put it in, and this turn, that turn, and then it's taking you in circles, or it takes you to an empty lot, and you're like, anybody? Okay, Ray Hostetler, we're like, we're talking, he's like, he was like jumping out of his seat. Apple Maps sucks! His dad, his son used to work for Apple. But the reality is, is, is we, we think it looks, because people say, oh, Apple Maps, better interface, works with Siri, much more appealing to look at. Yeah, but if it can't get me where I'm supposed to go, it doesn't matter how good it looks. I'll take Google Maps. Why? Because I knew Google was going to get me where I'm supposed to be. It doesn't matter how flashy it is and if it works with Siri or how nice it is. If it doesn't get you where you want to be, it's not worth it. And that's the comparison that we have is that if we are led by the Spirit, yes, I am equating Google and the Spirit and Apple and the flesh, okay? That's it. It's on tape. <laughs> but that's the reality. What are we using to guide us towards the direction that's actually going to satisfy our soul? We have to ask that question. And if it's not, we're not being led by God's Spirit, which, by the way, who lives inside of us when you say yes to Jesus, he's in there already. He's given you a natural guidance system, and you and I, every single time we have the decision to make on our satisfaction, I guarantee you, God has spoken to you. People say, I just, God isn't speaking. Yes, he is. He's just not speaking the way you want him to. Because I know every time in my life where I've had the decision of satisfaction, there is always a nudge in the right direction. I choose whether or not to ignore it or accept it. God doesn't always scream from the mountaintops. Many times he comes in a still, small voice, and he says, this is the way to go. And he waits for our obedience. And there's a, a second reality of a life of satisfaction. So spirit-led, and then the second one is that it's surrendering. It's a life of surrender. So in verses 22 and 23, Paul says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is, uh, there is no law. So think, think about this. He's saying this is, and this is really important. He doesn't say the fruits. He says the fruit singular which means you don't get some and don't get others. And it's fruit. It's not work. Fruit is a byproduct of health. Fruit is not something that is worked or earned. You think about this in the natural context. Plants don't work hard to grow fruit. 
They just do. You never driven by an orchard and saw an apple tree really working hard. Oh, I'm just trying to produce one apple. Never seen it before. Why? Because the, the apple is a result of good soil and a good farmer that knows how to take care of the tree. That's the result. So what does a tree do to produce fruit? Honestly, nothing. It doesn't. It's just the natural result of the health within it. What does a Christian do to produce the fruit of the Spirit? Nothing. Seriously. You know why I say this? Because I can't tell you, I've been in the church for so long, and people do a series through the fruit of the Spirit, and they give you 10 reasons how you can figure out how to have joy. Work really hard at having joy, doggone it. You better be happy. Really? It's like I have to be so miserable to have joy in my life. No, you don't. Just surrender to God's Spirit, and when He nudges you to go a certain direction, follow Him. And you'll experience the result of His presence, not the result of your work to make yourself have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. That doesn't work because that's the work of the flesh. And sometimes we work really hard only to be dissatisfied. It's, the, it's almost like the insanity of trying to swim against the rip current. You ever try to do that? You're in the ocean and you can feel the currents taking you out. Immediately your brain kicks into panic, right? I don't want to go away from the shore. I don't want to go in over my head. And so you immediately kick into panic and you try to start swimming, which is the last thing you're supposed to do because you can't outswim the current. It's too strong. They've clocked some rip current at eight miles an hour. That's faster than an Olympic swimmer. So you're in your mind thinking, I am better than Michael Phelps. And you can't do it. People die trying to swim to shore when they're caught in a current. So what do you do? You have to surrender and let the current take you. And then eventually you just have to swim what? Parallel to the shore to get out of it. But you can't swim into it. You can't work harder and just somehow I'm going to save myself. And the same thing is true. We surrender ourselves in our life to what God wants to, and then let him produce his fruit. Because I've, I've seen it happen in my life, that, that something will happen, and I'll wake up in a moment and think, how did that come about in my life? How, is it in the, how in the world am I having joy in this moment when everything else around me says I should be totally depressed? It's because God has shaped something inside of me because I've surrendered to him. Not because I worked really hard and earned the right to have joy. It doesn't work that way. And then there's a third reality of a life of satisfaction, and that is it's a life of sacrificing. And this seems kind of like counterintuitive, but so Paul says this in verse 24, really important. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What is he saying? Have sacrificed the very things that they thought would bring satisfaction to their life. All the ways that we thought, I'll be happy if this happens. And in a moment, we sacrifice those things. We crucify them as Jesus was crucified and lay them down and move forward from them that's when we find satisfaction. Now, that's difficult because you're like, oh, this is, and this is the reality. So many times when we talk about sacrifice, it's like following Jesus is so difficult and uh, there's, I'm going to suffer for Jesus. And there is suffering and it is difficult, but we take this on like a badge. Like, I'm just going to suffer for Jesus and he's going to make me happy because I'm suffering for him. No. What if you just sacrifice the things that you thought were going to make you happy and then surrendered to the satisfaction that God brings? That's why people, I've seen it so many times, people who seem to suffer the most following Jesus are the happiest people you know because they've just surrendered. They've just surrendered to the reality. This is what my life looks like. So I'm going to sacrifice what I think I'm supposed to have and I'm going to let God do what he wants to. And the result is God does something dramatic inside of them. And that's difficult for us. Listen to what Jesus said about this concept of sacrifice and surrender. In Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 37, 
This is in a paraphrase called the message by Eugene Peterson. He says, it says, calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, Jesus' words, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way to saving yourself, your true self. What good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? What could you ever trade your soul for? Just think about that. What good is your life if you spend all your life trying to go after everything that you think is going to supply you with satisfaction, and in the process you lose your very self? It's the world that we live in. We actually lose ourselves in the, pro in the process. But Jesus actually says, if you want to save your life, you have to what? Lay down your life, and then you'll live. It's the opposite. And this is the tension that we live in all the time. Because why? In our minds, we have the script filled out. If I have this in place, and this person, and this resource, and my life looks like this, then I'll be happy. Over the last couple months, uh, months I've had to come to this challenge again that God brings to me that says, you're not really sacrificing your life. You're hanging on to it. And I remember a couple months ago, I was reading through a passage like this and coming again to this reality that God's saying, listen, there's something that you have to learn. You can't keep trying to live your life and think you're going to make yourself happy. That's why Paul said, it says in another part of Galatians, he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me and through me. And I remember just thinking about that. I wrote some stuff in my journal, and then I told Kim, I had a conversation with her, and this is part of my accountability. I get it out when I tell Kim. She doesn't hold it over my head, but she holds me accountable. And I wrote some things down in my journal, and I said, it's not my life. It's not my time. It's not my resource. It's not my house. It's not my kids. It's not my church. None of it's mine. I don't deserve any of it. Therefore, if it's not mine, then I don't have the right to say no to something that God's saying yes to. And this is something that comes up all the time. Just when you think you're beyond it, God's saying there's something else that you're holding on to that you think will bring satisfaction, but I'm going to challenge it. It happened to me again last night. Jesus keeps doing this. Friday, just, just after John and Denise's uh, adoption of, of uh, Elva and Isaiah, we had B, who was our baby, our foster baby, for seven months. And just after that, we drove to her mom's house and handed her back in reunification, which is a huge success. That's our goal in fostering. Um, we're not as adventurous as John and Denise. We've already had two that have grown. We just want to reunify. That's what we do. But is, it is this bittersweet reality of you, this baby. We had her at three days. So she's like ours. But we know the ultimate goal is to help mom get healthy. And mom's healthy and she's doing great. So now we hand baby back over. And so it's like this bittersweet moment. And then I start to think, oh, wow. I got my life back now. <laughs> no more poopy diapers. No waking up in the middle of the night. None of that stuff. Now, we're continuing to foster. So Kim and I are talking. It's like, okay, we're going to take a month break, which kind of gives space in case anything goes haywire with B, we're, we're available. And I'm just thinking, it's a month of my life back. Seriously, I already have my schedule. Like, I'm going to go start running again on Monday morning. I'm going to start actually enjoying, you know, things and just kind of going through. And so then last night we get a call. And there's a one-month little boy, one-month-old little boy. Now, Kim is a mentor in the county, and so she has access to other families. So she's like, well, I said, honey, we, we said a month. She's like, yeah, yeah, I know. She goes, well, listen, I, I've got other families that, that have said they'd be available, so let me call them. And, and I'm like, Jesus, please. <laughs> please let them say yes. 
So she leaves the room, and she comes back, and I said, so? She said, oh, they all said no. I'm like, oh. Just being honest with you, I'm like, oh, Lord, help me. So she sits down on the couch next to me, and I looked at her, and I said, it's not my life. It's not my life. I said, let's do it. And I know that Kim and I have gone through that before between each placement that we get. And there's that tension, that battle. And every single time we get a child, Kim and I will look at each other. And even though we're tired, and even though life is a little bit difficult, we are so satisfied when we have a baby in our household. Every time. And it's like God says, you remember last time how you complained? And then what happened? I'm like, yeah, I know, but I forget. So pray for me when I, you know, on Sunday morning when I'm bloodshot eyes and I've been up all night and I'm a little grumpy. Pray for me. At least I'll be satisfied inside, right? Tell me that. Tell me that. <clears throat> anyway, hey, I'm going to ask the worship team to come join us and, and we're going to sing one last song together before we close. But I, I want to share one more thing just as a part of, of kind of some application, I think, for our lives and what that looks like in terms of what God wants to do. All of us battle with this reality of trying to take something that has become good in our life and eventually over time it just kind of rises to the top and even though we never intended it to be it becomes god and so we look to it for satisfaction we look to it to answer our soul and and it's the reason that we end up sinning but we don't see it that way until god says that that good things become an ultimate thing you know this happens time and time again throughout scripture and one of the times it's really clear is in the old testament when abraham and sarah were barren that uh, sarah was barren she couldn't she couldn't conceive she couldn't have a baby now obviously that is a difficult thing but in that day and age having a child and especially a firstborn son was everything that's that like put you on the radar of life because now you had a lineage now you had someone who would actually carry on the family name and so now you almost like you've had this sense of almost immortality even though you would die you know that that everything about you would be carried on in that firstborn and so when you couldn't have a firstborn it was like you were less than a person so that was the reality of your life, and they had contended for God to give them a child, and, and then God tells them, I'm going to give you a child, and if you know the story, they both laugh. Like, really? You waited this long? We're this old, and now you're going to bless us with a child? We don't believe it. And as you know the story, Isaac comes along, and God gives him this beautiful gift and a son. And so now they have a firstborn. They have a future. They have a lineage. They have a sense of immortality. Why? Because they have Isaac. And then as you read through the story, it comes to this really strange, strange twist that God relates to Abraham. And he says to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. Now, most of us should read the Bible like, okay, that's whacked. I don't think that should be in the Bible. That God would tell a dad to kill his own son. And then what's even crazier is Abraham says, yes. So you know the journey. They, they end up taking a trip together and they get up to the mountain, and there's the altar, and Abraham takes Isaac and puts him on the altar and is ready to kill his son. Now, why do you think God would want Abraham to do that? What, what reason could God possibly have that he wanted Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, which is a good thing, the gift from God that gave him a future and gave him a name, gave him people and, and, a, and a whole uh, kind of heritage that he's going to carry on after he dies. A good thing. And God says, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. Now, we're not privy to all the back conversation between God and Abraham, but I'm convinced probably one of the reasons God would bring Abraham to that point is that Isaac was now beginning to compete with God because now Isaac represented everything to Abraham. He did. 
but was he starting to represent, represent more to, Abra to Abraham than God himself? And so God says, I'm going to sacrifice. So here's the beauty of the way God works. God looks into the heart of Abraham and knows he's willing to give up even his own son and then provides another way of sacrifice so that he doesn't have to, ha he doesn't have to sacrifice Isaac. Now I want you to think about that because that's Abraham's journey, but that's our journey. Even the very things that God's blessed you in your life with are the very things that can become a curse to you. You remember Israel? God gave them a land. And what did they do? They forgot about God. And they focused in on the land and the possessions and what they could be without him. So we're going to ask you to do just your eyes closed and then we're going to sing the last song. And just again, as we walk through this series, God brings us to moments and opportunities to respond to what he's doing. And that, this is one of those again. Even as I've spoken this morning, I know God's spirit is at work and he's highlighting the one or the two or the three things in our life that we know are in competition with God. That they're, they're drawing us away and we're putting on them the sense of that's what's going to satisfy me. And today God is saying no. A life that walks in step with my spirit is what will satisfy your life. A life that surrenders all the things that it thinks are going to answer to its needs is what experiences satisfaction. A life that sacrifices the good things that have become ultimate things is a life that experiences satisfaction. And if you're here today and you know that God's brought to your mind that one thing, he's asking you, much like he asked Abraham, he's saying, if you want to be satisfied, you're going to have to let that thing go. The beautiful thing about God is if the thing that he's given you is good and he wants it to be good in the future, if you sacrifice it, he will resurrect it. But he'll resurrect it in the right context and the right priority. And maybe you're here today and in your life, you could look down in your history and you have seen now all the ways that you've attempted to satisfy your soul. All the different avenues that you've gone down in this world to try to answer to the vacancy inside of you that is only answered to by Jesus and his satisfaction by his spirit living inside of you. And you realize for the first time today the reason you've been dissatisfied is because you don't know who Jesus is. You've never met him. You've never talked to him. You've never connected with him. But today you can because he's the one that comes because his life was laid down for you. His death on the cross took all the failed attempts in sin of your attempts at satisfaction. He pays for all of those and says, listen, there's a different way. There's a better way of life. But it means you have to lay down and sacrifice all those failed attempts at being your own God, at replacing God in your life, and now let God be God through Jesus in your life. If that's you, you can surrender your life to him today, and you just begin to tell him that. He even knows your thoughts, and even you think those, and you begin to do what we call prayer, which is talking to God and say, I want to surrender my life. I want to stop trying to satisfy myself. I want to surrender to you and let you satisfy my soul. Lord Jesus, would you do that for each one of us today? We all all have a basic human need to be satisfied, but Lord, it's a matter of where we look to find that. We want to look to you today. We want to surrender to you today. As you, Lord, have pursued us, we want to pursue you to find satisfaction in you today. So would you do that in our lives and in these moments this morning?